Welcome back to Corn Syrup, a horror podcast. I'm Tyler. What's up, guys? I'm Mike. We are into part four of our five-part series. We are into films 20 through 11 of the 51 major slasher films from Halloween, Friday the 13th, Scream, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and Child's Play. And if you have not seen parts one through three, make sure you catch up. I do recommend doing so before you listen to part four. Follow us on Twitter at Corn Sarah Pod, and you can follow us on Instagram at Corn Sarah Podcast. Me and Ty are taking lots of selfies. We're very cute, so check out our Instagram. Let's get into number 20, Friday the 13th, part seven, The New Blood which was released in 1988. This is obviously coming off uh, one of the franchise's higher points in Jason Lives, Part 6. This is a movie that was obviously butchered. It was it was censored to a very alarming degree. And I think if it wasn't for that censorship, this movie would be a, a few spots higher at the very least. But here's a hot take for you, Mike. I think uh, this movie has the best final girl of the entire franchise. Her name is Tina. What do you think about that? The uh, Carrie ripoff, huh? Yeah. She's not bad, man. I, she's the only one that really puts up a real fight against Jason. In the final 15 minutes of this movie, she just beats the shit out of him and... It's enjoyable as hell. Well, here's another take. I think her showdown in the final 15, 20 minutes is Jason's second best showdown after, you know, obviously his showdown with, with Freddy and Freddy versus Jason. And I think Lar Park Lincoln portrays Tina very well. And let's get into another reason why I really, really enjoy this movie. So a couple episodes ago, I said that Kane Hodder at the very beginning of Jason X was my favorite Jason appearance, the way he looked in that film. I take that back. I apologize. This movie, right? This this is the best Jason has ever looked. There's the part where he comes out of the water and they show him from the back and his spine is showing. Love that spine look, man. It's so cool. He was a zombie in part six, really, but in this movie, he's morphed into something you can't kill. He's really scary in this movie. And shout out to director John Carl Buechler because he also did the uh, the makeup effects for this movie, which is pretty impressive. They show Jason's face at the end and it looks very good. And you compare it to the way it looks in Jason Takes Manhattan, and Jesus Christ, this guy should have won an Oscar compared to that. Final 10 minutes, he doesn't have the mask on, and like you said, Part 8 is he's such a stupid look. This movie pulls it off really well. I don't get why Part 8 just didn't really just copy this look and go with it. We don't really know why Part 8 did a lot of the things Even exist, did. yeah. Let's, let's stay on that for a second, because Part 8 actually copied a couple... They ripped off a couple characters from this film, too, in my opinion. Like Dr. Cruz in this film, Charles in Part 8 is a clear ripoff. And then you have Tamara in Part 8, who's like the bitchy blonde girl, is obviously a ripoff of Melissa in this film. So Manhattan just didn't have a lot of originality. But back to this movie, I mean, there's a couple classic kills despite the the heavy censorship. Obviously, one of Jason's more iconic kills of all time is the sleeping bag kill. And oddly enough, the censorship actually works to this kill's favor because right. he was supposed to beat her relentlessly, whereas now it's just one shot. And, it, you know, it, it plays off well. It's kind of comical. It's very and, quick. Yeah, and it's just become legendary. So a couple tidbits about this movie. C.J. Graham, who was a very strong Jason in Part 6, Jason Lives, was originally meant to reprise his role in this film, and probably rightfully so. You can make a strong case that he deserved a second go of it. Talking to fans on Twitter, uh, when we did a poll of who everyone's favorite Jason was, C.J. Graham got a lot of the votes. Can't argue that, really. John Carl Buechler, again, the director, really wanted to go in a different direction, and he ended up going with Kane Hodder. It turned out to be a fantastic decision despite C.J. Graham being a very capable Jason as well. But Kane Hodder obviously became a legend. He ended up reprising the role four times. And again, he looks great in this. It's a little bit of a shame that Kane Hodder's first and best appearance in the franchise is so heavily censored. 
And it's funny that you mentioned the uh, censorship because the Shout Factory is releasing the box set for Friday the 13th. That comes out uh, October 13th. Yeah. I don't know if that's a Friday or not, but that would be convenient. Part 7 is the movie I'm looking forward to most when that box set comes out because this box set is uncensored and uncut. That's the first movie I'll watch when I buy this box set. Yeah, this is a really underrated Friday the 13th installment. I do think that you and I like it a little bit more than a lot of people, but I just think it has pretty much everything you would want in a Friday the 13th other than the blood and guts, which unfortunately we do not get. But it has a great Jason. It has a great final girl. I would argue that there are still too many nothing characters in this movie other than your final girl and, and Dr. Cruz. I, you know, Dr. Cruz, I, he, he's a dick, but at least he has motives. You know, he's trying to exploit Tina for her telekinetic powers, which is understandable. And he also has a great death. Is that a weed whacker or hacksaw? I don't know. I, I think it's a weed whacker, which I think, I read this online, I believe that's the that's the first time. I don't know if it's the only time, but it's the first time Jason ever used a power tool mm-hmm. to kill somebody. Um, I also like the character of Melissa that you mentioned. She plays a very good bitch. She has a really funny death scene to the way she gets the axe in her uh, head and then just tossed across the room. She's thrown behind the TV stand, right? Yeah. The TV set. <laughs> Never to be seen again. They knew how to have a little bit of fun at this point. And they right. And fun when you're it. at part seven, that's kind of what you have to do. This movie doesn't take itself seriously. Knows what it is. That final act, the fight with Tina and Jason, Kane Hodder at the time actually set a record. He did that stunt himself where he got burned. He got lit on fire. On fire. He was on fire for 40 seconds. Right. Now, that's been broken since, but at the time, that was a record, and yeah. it really goes to show you, because that's Kane Hodder's first portrayal as Jason. It goes to show you the commitment and the enjoyment that he got from playing this iconic horror character. Can we talk about the ending and how stupid it is, though, with her yes. father coming back from the watery grave to kill Jason? It's really bad. Like, what's he still doing in the water? Yeah. They didn't <laughs> retrieve his body? This movie's far from perfect, but it, but it is very good, and it is our number 20. You want to move on? Let's do it. Let's go to 19. We are back into the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. We are at Wes Craven's A New Nightmare. And thank God for this movie. Thank God for Wes Craven because Freddy's Dead, for some freaking reason, was originally supposed to be the last film of this franchise. And Wes Craven said, hell no. Yeah, Wes Craven got one look at that piece of crap and decided to, to make another movie. And here's what we get. And He, he wasn't going to let his baby die out like that. No. And this is a very interesting movie. It's probably the most meta horror film of all time. came out two years before Scream, and this movie doesn't get nearly enough credit when you compare it to, you know, the worldwide phenomena that Scream turned into. But this movie is a lot different. It's not your average nightmare. It's actually Robert Englund's favorite of the nightmare franchise. You have Heather Langenkamp playing herself. You have Robert Englund playing himself. You even have Wes Craven and Bob Shea, who was the executive producer, playing themselves. It's basically a look into the psyche of horror creators and trying to distinguish what separates reality versus fiction. This is Freddy coming into the real world and haunting its creators and actors, and it's a very interesting look. Yeah, and the critics love this movie. It got an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, very good score for a horror movie. Audience gave it a 66%. Fans didn't really come out to the box office to see it, though. On an $8 million budget, this made $19.7 million. So this may not be a movie for everybody. Well, sometimes I don't even think that it's a movie for me. Because if I'm if I'm in the mood to watch a nightmare movie, I'm probably not putting this movie on. But for me, it scores major points for originality, style, intelligence. This is a super, super unique movie. I always thought 
Wes Craven, he was always a little bit one step ahead of his audience. Like I think he always. knew what the audience wanted even before we knew what we wanted. And he really broke down a barrier here. This is just a super interesting movie. It's fun to see Robert Englund play himself. It's fun to see Wes Craven act. And Heather Langenkamp, if anyone thought that she was just some run-of-the-mill scream queen or final girl, she really – she's really great in this movie. She is, and I'm kind of surprised that we never really see her in um, anything else. So since we're talking about good acting, can we talk about the bad acting and bad child actors? I know. Holy it's, shit, it's, this kid sucks. It's painful. Uh, they really put a lot on his plate for being a bad actor. I found myself cringing a lot watching this, watching his scenes when he's doing the voice like, Freddy. It's really bad. It's it's hard to watch at times. It's a really bad Danny Torrance impression right. from The Shining. You can tell that's what they were going for. But also, like, as good as Heather Langenkamp tries to sell the creepiness of this kid, it still doesn't work. Like, she does all she can to try to sell it, and it still comes off really bad. There's something about a really bad child actor that can really bring down the momentum of a movie. It really does. This movie is slow at times. It comes in at 112 minutes, nearly two hours. I guess you wouldn't say this is much of a slasher movie. So I guess the 112 minutes isn't crazy. But when you only have four deaths in that amount of time, can seem to drag on at times. Yeah, and you don't get a lot of Freddy Krueger. When you do see him, it's very good. He's very scary. In fact, Wes Craven said he wanted to kind of bring back his original concept of Freddy, having him be menacing and, you know, lacking that campiness. Which... Not funny at all. And I actually dig that trench coat he wears in the movie, Me too. too. In the hat. Look. Yeah, yep. it's like when you do see Freddy, it's, you know, it's the old classic Freddy. He's scary, but he has an updated appearance. It's um, almost like the uh, Jason X of uh, Freddy Krueger. You are you are so far removed from the dream, dead. the dream child and right. Freddy's dead. I mean, this is we're we're on a whole other stratosphere here and with this. Movie. That's what they had to do. I mean, you couldn't leave that sour taste of Freddy's dead and dream child in yeah. in their fans' mouth. Moving on to number eighteen, we are into a film that came out in two thousand eighteen. We are talking about Halloween. This is the second most recent film on our list, other than two thousand nineteen's Child's Play. This was a movie that you and I were extremely eager to see. When we found out about this movie and we were like, wait, David Gordon Green and Danny McBride, that's that's different. Initially, I was like, is there a different Danny McBride that I don't know about? Right. But no, it was the Danny McBride. We got a lot of thoughts about it. Um, give me your thoughts and then, and then we'll dig into it. It's the ultimate movie where you say, it's a great movie, but they ignore Halloween 2, a movie that me and you love dearly. Mm -hmm. Is that something that they really had to do, you think? Looking at this movie, now I saw what they were trying to do. You ignore Halloween 2 because now you switch up the timeline where Michael Myers and Laurie Strode aren't brother and sister. So now it just kind of goes back to randomness now. Like why did Michael Myers choose this girl? It's because he's stalking her. Right. In this movie, it kind of feels like he's going after her, like specifically her. So that kind of doesn't play with the randomness, right? Yeah, you did not have to cut out Halloween 2. I don't know. Halloween 2 just always felt like a... I know I use this word a lot, but it's just the perfect companion it is. to the 1978 Halloween. And you didn't have to eliminate it. I understand eliminating the the Jamie Lloyd timeline. And obviously, and obviously you're sure as hell not going to address the Cult of Thorn timeline. You know, there, there, there's a couple different timelines within this franchise, and it's super, super sloppy. So to cut all of that out and go back to a clean slate, I get it. But you didn't have to cut out Halloween 2. Now, does that really impact the movie all that much? No. Not at all. It really doesn't. The thing, the things I really love about this movie, it's very modern. It's very sleek. It moves fast. 
And we got the chance to see Michael Myers on the big screen in the year 2018. And I will never, ever forget that. This movie brought in $255 million at the box office, by far the most out of the 51 movies that we're covering. I, th- I think second is uh, Scream with 170. So this shattered it. The best thing this movie did, just my personal opinion, in terms of creating um, an interesting timeline and, and creating new characters, was the introduction of Andy Matichak as Allison. Because I really think you're going to see her kind of take over. Obviously, we're getting a trilogy now. We're getting Halloween. We're supposed to get Halloween Kills in October of this year. Now it's 2021. Right. And I really think that the franchise is going to take off and almost revolve around her. I think Jamie Lee Curtis obviously will be there, but I think she's going to. I think she's going to take a back seat to Allison. For Halloween Kills, they're bringing back a lot of the major characters that I'm looking forward to. There's Lonnie, there's Tommy Doyle, Marion Chambers. I'm looking forward to this uh, whole trilogy that they got going on because I'm not going to lie. At the end of this movie, kind of felt myself wanting more. Mm-hmm. Wasn't very satisfied with the ending. And then, of course, the shattered box office record. So a sequel was announced not long after. Do you think you and I are a little bit too harsh just because we are gigantic Halloween fans? And of course, like when a movie comes out in 2018 with the hype that it had and the money that it made, we're going to be a little more. I thought the marketing for this movie was awesome. I thought uh, with uh, Blumhouse, I thought that Jason Blum did a great job marketing this movie. Uh, The trailer, the first trailer for this movie dropped in June. We had to wait uh, four months for this movie to come out. We compare this movie a lot to Halloween H2O because the way I see it, this movie just basically says, okay, yeah, that's a good movie, but this is how it should have been done. And frankly, me and you thought H2O did it better, and it portrays Laurie Strode better, and in a more realistic way, I believe. James Jude Courtney is Michael Myers. I think he's a very capable Michael Myers. I like his mask. I think the wear and tear on it looks very natural and realistic. This I, may sound strange. I love his walk, especially the yeah. scene where he's going house to house. I'll let you get more into that. Yeah. But to, he walks like Michael Myers, which is important. Yeah, you touched upon it. The best scene of the movie is the one-take scene where right after he gets his mask at the gas station from the True Crime podcasters, uh, there's that one take where he goes into the old lady's garage. Mm-hmm. Um, he takes the, the hammer and he goes into her house and he kills her, which is an obvious ode to part two, although he doesn't kill the old people in part two. No. So it's a little bit of a, little bit of a difference, but then he goes right, you know, he looks, he goes to the next house over or a couple houses down. He, he peeks through the window and you get that iconic Halloween noise. Yeah. And then he, and then you see the lady looking out the window and Michael Myers is behind her. It, Michael Myers is very brutal in this movie. Yeah. Like in Halloween one, you didn't really get that vibe. He just kind of stabs you or slashes you and. This movie, he's breaking necks, breaking jaws, yeah. stomping on people's heads. But that one take, you get the classic Haddonfield setting. I right. mean, it feels like a Halloween movie, and that's the best. That The thing I love most about the Halloween franchise is the atmosphere, the setting. Right. This movie has it. Yeah. Thanks a lot to John Carpenter's score. Best move to bring him back. How about you when can- Andy Matichek, when she first sees Michael Myers, how about that, that piece of music that plays at that moment? For anyone that wants to hear that, it's called Michael Myers Stalks Allison. So just type that on like YouTube and listen to three minutes of magic. It's it's so good. It's such a powerful scene because she finds her friend Oscar dead, like hanging from the, the, mm-hmm. the gate. And she finally sees the man that her grandmother has been talking about her whole life. Yeah. He's real. Let me ask you a couple questions. What's your, you know, obviously you have David Gordon Green and Danny McBride. What's your thoughts on some of the comedy? Uh, the comedy is hit or miss yeah. with Julian. Mostly hits, but it also goes over the top at times. The cop scenes. The cops are not as bad as the cops in Halloween 5. Let's get that straight. Well, Jesus. 
it's also just kind of feels like a filler scene or comedy um, for the sake of comedy. Right. Really like, why am I watching this right now? I have another example. One that I hated the first time I saw it in theaters. When they first introduce Allison's parents. Right. And the dad's like, oh, I got peanut butter on my, my penis. penis. Right. That's not funny. And also, you would never say that in front of your – like, who, nobody yeah. has that sense of humor. You can be funny and, and still have, like, the awkward dad jokes, but yeah. without – you know, not that. I was kind of. But then he's funny. Putting. He's funny at the dinner scene with right. when he's like, "Oh, Lonnie used to sell me peyote." Yeah, like that's funny. He kind of. I don't know the comedy. Like you said, I guess it's hit or miss. It's very uneven. I don't. Yeah, I don't think it tries to be too funny, but there are some scenes that you definitely could have gone without. Before we move on, because we could talk a lot about this movie. Your thoughts on a Judy Greer. B your thoughts on Doctor Sartain. I'll answer the Judy Greer, and I'll let, and I don't want to hog up all the fun, so I'll let you get to Doctor Sartan. Okay. Uh, Judy Greer is not very good. She is the worst out of the three Strode women, I think. By a lot, I think. By a lot. Is she miscast? Yeah, I was gonna just say. Uh, I remember when she was casted, thinking um, that's kind of strange. Like, yeah, you know, she she's a B lister, I'd say. <laughs> so most people know her. Not very believable, especially in her monologue scene when she's talking about her childhood. She just doesn't feel like Laurie no. Strode's daughter. I agree. Like, you get this character, Allison, and she feels more like Laurie Strode's granddaughter than Judy Greer does Laurie I Strode's daughter. I love that scene at um, Allison's school with her and Laurie talking when she hands her the uh, money. It just feels so real. It, it feels like a, a strange grandmother talking to her granddaughter that she doesn't see as much, but there's still love there. Yeah, much, much more interesting than Laurie Strode and, and Karen. Right. She yeah. just kind of comes off as pissed off this whole time you know the whole movie about the way she was raised dr certain i mean he was okay i don't really think you needed him like i I didn't care enough about the loomis knockoff for that to really i just didn't care about it and it's obviously just used as a way to get uh allison to laurie's house right i don't know i could take or leave his character and you felt exactly the same way that's why i wanted you to answer it um yeah, that plot twist did nothing for me. We're again, Michael Myers on the big screen in 2018, and we're getting a trilogy from very competent filmmakers and writers. Yeah. So we're, Can't we're wait. very fortunate, very much looking forward to seeing where the story develops and where these characters develop. Moving on to number 17 is the original Friday the 13th. This is the first first installment that we're talking about here. This was this came out in 1980. Obviously, it turned into an absolute juggernaut of a slasher franchise. A classic, um, if you will. Yeah. Sean S. Cunningham was the director. He was really just trying to capitalize off Halloween. That's no secret. He's admitted it. But this is a movie, a very low budget, and it certainly feels very low budget. A lot of the kills are done from the killer's POV. Um, in the end, it's obviously revealed to be the mother of Jason, Pamela, or he's played by Betsy Palmer. Some absolute legendary special effects, courtesy of Tom Savini. You have the, the legend, legend Tom Savini. Absolute legend. You have the the classic Kevin Bacon kill. Oddly enough, Kevin Bacon doesn't really play an important character in this movie. I think he's the third camper to die in this movie, so he's killed relatively early. But the effects are good. The suspense is good. The score is classic and familiar. So you hit on the low budget of this movie, and you're right. $550,000 to make this movie. Brought in $39 million at the box office. So this movie was filmed... At Camp Nobi Bosco, which is about 70 miles northeast of where we sit right now in my parents' basement. So I think one day we should make a drive up there, Ty, because right now everything is still intact. It's kind of like a museum type uh, for Friday the 13th if you ever want to go up there. So, so episode five, we are recording on site. We're, right we're going to Camp <laughs> no, uh, Nobi Bosco. We're we going to be there. They were so low on money that they 
pretty much had to beg to uh, film at that camp. They had to make a donation to uh, the Boy Scouts of America in order to film there. Uh, you mentioned the, the score. It's obviously not Halloween. It's a very simple score. It's not used very often. Like, it's a very quiet movie. Uh, it's a very simple score, but it's a very simple movie. Um, there's a lot of nature shots. It really relies on its campground setting with the lake and the trees in the background. Adrian King, I think, is a pretty good final girl. You're, you're, talking, about a, you're talking about a franchise with a, really, with a lot of bad final girls. And Adrian King, to be the first one, she does it good enough. You know, you mentioned her final chase scene with uh, Betsy Palmer. Pretty classic chase scene. There's a bunch of slaps and people are getting hit with pot, pots and pans and stuff like that. It, it's kind of goofy, but it's uh, it's really classic. And uh, Betsy Palmer was actually slapping Adrian King for real. And Adrian King started crying. And Betsy Palmer said, because Betsy Palmer was a trained theater actress. Right. And she was like, hey, in theater, the slaps are real. Right. And, the, and the director, Sean S. Cunningham, was like, no, no, no. This is a movie. You can't actually hit her. This actually was uh, Betsy Palmer's first movie since 1959. What's no that? Uh, 21 years. Holy yeah. crap. And Betsy Palmer hated this movie. She needed money to buy a new car. She called this... What did she call this movie? A piece of shit. She called this movie a piece of shit, which is about as blunt as you could possibly get. She obviously never saw Jason Goes to Hell or... <laughs> Jason takes Manhattan. <laughs> Lots of filler in this movie. It's slow, and obviously, it's the it's the gateway into both of our second favorite slasher franchises. You mentioned the uh, kills, um, especially with Kevin Bacon's uh, his character Jack. It's a legendary kill. Mm-hmm. Uh, his lover Marcy has a great kill with the axe to the head. That's Tom just at his best, man. Right. Uh, there's a lot of off-screen deaths that you. I wish we could have seen more of, especially with how good the makeup is in this movie. There's a lot of off-screen deaths, and that kind of makes mean, me not like this movie as much as I should. You know, this movie's super low budget. It, it's an absolute classic. This is this is the epitome of a classic film. It feels like a classic when you're watching it. it it's weird because Jason's not in this movie. I know I'm stating the obvious there, but, you know, the, the killer that everyone comes to know and love from the franchise is not the killer in this movie. Right. It's a classic movie, man. It's just not on the same level as Halloween, Texas Chainsaw, Child's Play, and Scream. That's that's why it's our first movie. The most unique thing about the movie, though, is the killer is a female, and in 1980, probably convinced that it's a guy, because right. that's just the way these movies went. But it's not better than this next movie. Ooh, nice segue. Which is, our, num- which is our number 16, and that is Friday the 13th, Part 2, which came out exactly one year after Friday the 13th. This is where Jason is introduced. I think it's a better movie for that reason. This movie, this movie moves a little bit quicker. Um, to me, it's a little bit of an easier watch. So it's, it's the shortest movie of the Friday the Thirteenth franchise at eighty six minutes long. It's almost ten minutes shorter than the original, which is crazy. Ten minutes is a lot. It's a lot in a slasher movie, yeah. And the characters are, I would say, significantly better than the characters Much better. in Part One. You get a much better final girl, and that's not to say Alice was a bad one in the the original, but you get a better one here with Ginny, played by um, Amy Steele. I think she's better because she has a background in child psychology. She's a student. And she actually uses it at the end of the movie. I think they did a good job writing better characters. I I called Tina from Part 7 the best final girl in the franchise. I would call... Ginny, played by Amy Steele, the second best. Okay. That's my opinion. I don't think you're going to get much of an argument from that. I think we might have to do a poll on Twitter and see who everyone's favorite 
Friday, um, Friday the 13th final girl is. Sounds good to me. But yeah, the other characters you get, some other really good characters, you get Mark and Vicky who kind of have like a love interest going on. Mark is in the They wheel- are so cute together, man. They are. And Mark has, Mark's in a wheelchair and he has another very, very iconic Friday the 13th kill where he's stabbed in the head and he mm-hmm. falls down the, uh, he falls down the steps in his wheelchair. Not falls down. Rides down. Rides down. <laughs> he rides down the steps in his wheelchair. Great kill. What do you think about the Jason in this movie? You, you've you've always been a little bit critical of this in the past. He is he's a little clumsy boy. Uh, Steve Dash, rest in Steve peace. Steve Dash, actually. So uh, Steve Dash plays Jason. Uh, Warrington Gillette plays the unmasked Jason. Breaks through that window, but for some reason, Steve Dash is not credited as Jason in this movie. It's Warrington Gillette. Steve Dash, we are giving you your your credit. Rest in peace. And by the way, the film still has a little bit of a whodunit aspect, too. It does. Like, they don't show the killer. It's still done from the killer's POV. Right. So you still kind of get that same um, that same suspense, that same whodunit that you get from the original, which I like. Uh, the opening scene I like a lot with the death of Alice. Um, it's the first time that we ever see Jason actually leave the campsite to go into some into someone else's house and stalk them and eventually kill them. And the uh, teapot scene is, you know, it's it's funny. Very similar to the original, but I just think the, the characters are better. Final Girl's definitely better. Obviously, you get introduced to Jason. Now, it does miss Tom Savini. There's not as much blood or impressive effects in this one as you get in the original. So let's go to number 15. We're, we're going to Texas, and this is the best remake on our list. On our list. This yep. is Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the remake released in 2003 by our boy Marcus Nispel, who also directed the Friday the 13th remake. Well done, Marcus. This movie, um, you know, I think it's well, it succeeds for a lot of reasons. Number one, though, I think uh, they brought back the original cinematographer from the 1974 original. His name was Daniel Pearl, and they really captured like the backwoods of desolate Texas very well. Mm-hmm. Like it just, it just feels very rednecky, and uh, the characters are constantly sweating. Like you know, they're just in this sweltering heat. You get a super badass Leatherface. You get almost the perfect characters in this movie. All of the protagonists in this movie are really good, led by Jessica Biel as Erin, who's a kick-ass final girl. But you get Kemper, Morgan, Andy, Pepper. They're just really believable. They, they all play off each other very well. And if you're comparing it to Friday the 13th remake, again, directed by the same director, Marcus Nispel, now you had characters in that film like Trent and Brie. I know they served a purpose, more of a comedic purpose, but they felt superficial, whereas none of the, none of the protagonists in this movie feel superficial at all. And if you want to get into the antagonist, our boy Arlie Ermey, man. Yeah. Probably our favorite character in that movie. He kills it. He's so believable. You're I'm introduced to him and he's just like the sheriff of a small town. He's a drunk. Mm-hmm. Uh the 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 way he wraps the um hitchhiker's body in a saran wrap. Like yeah. it's it's so funny, it's so dark. You just take him as, you know, just some bumbling drunk. But really he's part of the whole thing he's part of of the of the family that we know from the original i love the scene with him and morgan when uh they're in the van uh after he finds the joint and he's holding the gun up to morgan it's it's pretty thrilling stuff for a scene so scary that doesn't involve leatherface that was a job well done yeah and andrew brunarski um is the second best Leatherface of all time. I don't really think he's not much competition because no, I know. Yeah, I don't know if he's the scariest slasher villain on this list of fifty-one, but he's definitely the most torturous. Like yeah. he doesn't usually kill his victims right away. 
Mm-hmm. And there's that one particular death with Andy that you and I really liked as a kid where he chops his leg off. And puts the salt in. Yeah. Hangs him on a hook and he gets a handful of salt and, and puts the salt into his open wound. Now Seems a bit yeah. out of place. It does now, yeah. It does. But as as a kid, we're like, hell yeah, you put that salt in there. Now, some of the gore probably hasn't aged well. But to that point, I actually think this movie was a little bit of a trendsetter. Because Saw, Definitely was. Saw came out in 04 and then you get Hostile in 05. Followed the, by all the remakes. Yeah. This was the first remake too. It's not just the best one. It was the first. Yeah, so this movie really, you know, I, I don't want to, I think calling it ahead of its time is, is a bit of an overstatement, but it, it was, I, I think it was a trendsetter in a sense. It definitely was, and I think the fact that it came out, you know, in our childhood, it probably means a little bit more to us personally. You get the Hitchhiker's Suicide, an original take on that scene. But with their own twists. With their own twists, and when you know, when you see that happen, you know you're in, you're in for some pretty effed up shit in this movie. Mm-hmm. The gore is a lot, and that is my one minor complaint about this film. As I get a little bit older, I do find myself going away from super gory movies like this. It's not always an easy watch because of the gore, but it's enough where it's super scary. Arlie Ermy is perfect. Most characters are perfect. You know, you get a What's your thoughts on Aaron, a.k.a. Jessica Biel, as the final girl? I think you can make a really strong case that she's a top ten final girl. On, of all time. All, of all time. Okay. I really do because you get that scene in the meatpacking plant at the end where she, she cuts off Leatherface's arm. That really proves her as a capable She's final badass girl. and, you know, she's willing to uh, search for her boyfriend Kemper. Most of the other people want to leave. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she sticks up for her boyfriend and her friends and she just kicks ass. Andrew Bernarski, back to his Leatherface real quick. The other component about his Leatherface that I really like is he does have that human element where you kind of hear him moan and groan and whine sometimes. Right. So I, yeah, he's just a really well-rounded leather face. I, I think the camera work is very uh, well done in this movie. Uh, specifically in the meat uh, packing scene when she's banging in the locker, she's banging and she's telling yeah, Leatherface to come back, and you think you know, and he opens up the locker, and she's obviously in the one that's behind him, and mm-hmm. that's when she chops his arm off. Um, another scene when she's in the truck and she's wiring it to start. And Arlie Army opens up the door, and it turns out she was actually in the cop car, yeah. and she runs him over and kills him. Very super. well done by our boy Marcus Nispel. Yeah, super good filmmaking. Really good decision in this movie. Again, the gore might be a touch over the top, but I always have a lot of nostalgia for this movie, too. I saw it so many times when I was a kid, and I do, for the, I think, I do think for the most part it holds up really well. And, I do, too. And by the way, I think it's developed a little bit of a cult following, too, whereas the other remakes have kind of fallen by the wayside. I think a lot of people appreciate this movie. I do too. Let's move on to number 14. Let's go into Curse of Chucky. Oddly enough, this was a direct to DVD film. No direct. idea why. No idea why. It was This from is a damn good movie, man. 2013, Don Mancini, his best work as a director. Obviously, Don Mancini is the godfather of Chucky and Child's Play. This movie is so competently made. I can't believe the same guy that directed Seed of Chucky directed this film. I can't believe that The Sea of Chucky was in theaters and this movie wasn't. I mean, The Sea of Chucky brought in $24 million at the box office. This easily could have doubled that, in my opinion. It actually brought in $3.4 million on DVD sales, which ain't bad, on a $5 million budget. This got a 76% on Rotten Tomatoes. Very good. Dang. 56% by the fans. They're stupid. <laughs> That's not right. This franchise was dead, man. And this movie just resurrected it. Hear me out. I think all things considered, this is one of the more impressive movies on this entire list. Because it came out in 13. 
the last Child's Play film was in 04. Mm-hmm. And Mancini did not make a re- he did not make a remake. He did not um It wasn't a television show like they're talking about. It's- yeah, he didn't eliminate some of the timelines like Halloween 18 did. Right. He he stuck to the material mm-hmm. and he made an, a, a very, very good sequel. So shout out to Mancini. This movie's super impressive. And thanks to that, this movie has awesome appearances by Jennifer Tilly and Alex Vincent. So it stays in that same storyline. The cameos are awesome. And it doesn't even like I could go off the rails of the story that they're trying to t- uh, tell in this movie, un- unlike Cold of Chucky, right? Which kind of just goes in every type of way because they want to, and you know, they want to bring in Jennifer Tilly and Andy. This movie feels very tight compared to Colt. Like Colt is, I mean, Colt. I like. I, don't, I just don't even really understand a lot of the uh, the plot points in that movie. Either. Whereas nope. this movie just feels so well made, Simple. It's so fluid, uniform. It all takes place in one setting in yeah. that house. It's a good setting too. A yep. really good one. So much like the original Child's Play, Chucky doesn't speak until about halfway in this movie. But when he does, Dorf is great. There's the scene where Alice, the little girl in the movie, says she's scared, and then Chucky goes, "You fucking should be." It's super dark and menacing stuff from Brad Dorf. Good writing one, by Mancini. One, uh, one more line I want to add from Chucky that has me cracking up every time I hear it when he's talking to uh, Fiona Dorf. Actually, his uh, daughter in real life. Yeah. Um, he goes, you know, you remind me a lot of Andy Barkley because you're a whiny little bitch. It's great. <laughs> Fiona Dorf, by the way, a really, really good final girl. Unfortunately, Colt sort of exposed her a little bit i think uh, a lot of that had to do with the writing in colt but in this movie she's very good she's awesome and uh she's more than capable as a final girl yeah even though she's bound to a wheelchair she puts up a good fight she is a good aunt to her niece uh, even though she has a shitty family that really doesn't support her she's very strong in this movie is she, is she the best final friend. girl in the franchise uh yeah i i have her um over kyle from part two and karen in part one yeah i think she's the best it's sucks because in Colt, yeah, she's obviously not as good, but in this movie, she is the best final girl, hands down. Lots of gore in this movie, but even the gore is done tastefully. Like, it it, it, it's not over the top in any way, even though it might be the most the, the goriest Child's Play movie, maybe. I don't know. I'd have to really double check that, but, but, but none of the gore feels over the top. It's very well done. Mm-hmm. Do you know the first time watching this movie where I was like, okay, Don Mancini has really, really matured and improved as a filmmaker is the chili scene. Great scene. Father Frank. Father Frank and his, they remove the piece of the car after he causes the accident and his head comes flying mm-hmm. off. It's just a really well done movie. I mean, for me, it's, it's easily, it's easily in the top three of this franchise, which is why we're talking about it right here. And for a movie that came out in 2013 that was direct to video, goddamn, is that an accomplishment? Let's move on to number 13. Lucky number 13. Let's do it. A movie that critics don't like, but you and I love. It's Halloween 4. It came out in 1988, directed by Dwight H. Little. We went seven years without a Michael Myers film because of the part three season of The Witch. Obviously, did not have Michael. Man, when they came back with Michael... They came back with a purpose. This movie does not feel like a cash grab to me. It does not feel like a movie where they were struggling to come up with ideas and interesting characters. They really came back full force. This movie kicks ass. Critics hated this movie, man. And when I was reading some of the reasons why, they say it's... They always mention the original. And it's like, all right, well, obviously it's not going to be as good as the original. It almost feels like a remake in a way, like, like kind of like a sequel remake. It still has the babysitter feel. Still have like the the Laurie Strode family tree storyline. I freaking love this movie, man. And 
this is the first horror movie that you have, the, the first slasher movie you ever really saw, right? I think you were right in that spot you're at right now <laughs> when we first watched this we, movie. We watched it right here in your parents' basement. So many good memories. I didn't get a whole lot of sleep that night, and I've always had a soft spot for the movie since. It's not just a soft spot. This movie holds up incredibly well. It's very scary. It's very atmospheric. You get that classic Haddonfield setting, which I've always loved about the franchise. I the setting is very good. Yeah, it's yeah, a great job. It feels like Halloween, doesn't it? And I think it's scarier than H2O. I think it's the third scariest movie of the franchise. Um, H2O may be done a little bit better. I commend the filmmakers for bringing back uh, Donald Pleasance as Dr. Loomis. I, mm-hmm. After seven years without Michael, I don't really think they had to bring him back necessarily. But Donald Pleasance- Especially because he was supposed to die after part two. Yeah. They never really allude to how he got out. And Donald Pleasance is really good in this movie. Yes, he's he's starting to lose some screws a little bit. But but compared to part five, I mean, this is a really, you get a really good yeah. Loomis. He very clearly, genuinely cares for Jamie Lloyd, which, by the way, is one of the best decisions that this franchise ever made, is not only including the character of Jamie Lloyd, but casting Danielle Harris, who just is, is perfect as she Jamie is. Lloyd. She really is, man. Um, it's kind of more upsetting thing about now how they just butchered her in Halloween 5. Dude, this... Five came out a year after this, and rewatching four, Halloween five almost plays like a spoof of this movie. It really does. They just that's very well put. They yeah, butcher the entire storyline. They butcher all of the characters. Uh, the the town locals, like the redneck guys in this movie, fighting. It's a good storyline. It makes sense. Like, wouldn't a small town like Haddonfield do that? Wouldn't they go after Michael Myers? Mm-hmm. There's that. Rest in peace, Ted Hollister. By the way, they shoot that guy thinking it's Michael, and like, oh, it's Ted Hollister. They just you killed, asshole. They just killed some <laughs> random guy, and then they just go back on with their night. <laughs> Completely pointless, but I don't know. It cracked. It cracks me up. But you get a lot of good stuff in this movie. Once Michael Myers enters the house, like in the third act, he kills Kelly with the shotgun. Who was Very a bitch sweet. and deserved to die. You get Brady with his. Uh, what a great kill that is when he crushes, when he lifts him up and crushes his face. Yep, and his, lim- his, and his body just goes limp. Um, and then the Followed ch- right by the roof scene, man. Best scene of the movie. One of the best scenes in the franchise. Of course. I'm not, yep. I'm not, I'm not even afraid to say that. When you, when you get uh, Jamie Lloyd on the back of Rachel and Rachel's climbing mm-hmm. the roof and Ellie Cornell, who plays Rachel, actually cut herself on a nail right. filming the scene and she finished the scene. And and with the music playing in the background, yeah, yeah. it's just chills when you watch that scene. You get a good Michael with George P. Wilbur. Yep who would come back and play Michael Myers in The Curse. There was a scene filmed uh, as a bridge from Halloween 2 to Halloween 4 to kind of show how Dr. Loomis escaped that big fire because that kind of seems unrealistic how he would survive that. Yeah, right. But the uh, uh, scene showed Loomis being taken out on a stretcher with firefighters putting out Michael Myers and Loomis is screaming, let him burn. If you've seen the Halloween Kills trailer, that sounds exactly... Like the same uh, plot of how Halloween Kills is going to turn out, yeah. you know, with the fire trucks going towards the house and they're going to put them out and they say, let them burn. Yeah, yeah. It's so funny. that's so that's really cool. The ending of this movie is a true holy shit moment. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. again, I don't mean to keep going back to five, but like five ruined this movie. If like, it really did. If five was a solid sequel, this four, this movie might be ranked even a little bit higher. I don't know how much higher. Yeah. So the ending to this movie, it's not ruined, but it's definitely cheapened by Halloween five. And like, it's easy to look back like four and five should have been such good companion movies. And mm-hmm. like, it's, it's, it's not, it's hard to watch Halloween four and not think what could have been. Yeah. If they and had it not turned just into like a trilogy too, because Curse of Michael Myers is kind of based yeah. off four and five and they just bust straight after that. I want to give a lot of credit to the director. Dwight H. Little. This movie probably could have been pretty bad. Seven years after we last saw Michael, this could have been such an easy cash grab. And to me, it's super well made. And 
whoever was in charge of casting, whether that was Little or somebody else, but, you know, Daniel Harris, Ellie Cornell, just all good stuff all around. And um, Sheriff Meeker plays, a, yeah. plays is very good. So this was uh, John Carpenter and Deborah Hill sold the rights to Mustafa Akkad. So this is this was this is the first movie that does not involve uh, Carpenter and Hill, right. and it really doesn't show. It does not feel like it, which is a which is a credit to the movie and and, and the director Dwight H. Little. Yep, this will be a movie I watch for the rest of my life every year on Halloween. Heading into number twelve, we have a Nightmare on Elm Street three Dream Warriors, which was released in eighty seven, directed by Chuck Russell. You will find some diehard Nightmare on Elm Street fans. I think this is the best Nightmare movie. Even better than the original, you, yep. You, and I'll tell you what, while we obviously think the original is better because we have not spoken about it yet, I wouldn't put up much of a fight. No. Oh, of course not, no. I mean, I think this is easily the second best in the franchise. But I would say Nightmare is 1A and Dream Warriors is 1B. Right. But let's get into what we like about it. This is Patricia Arquette's first ever movie, and she's she's very, very good as Kristen Parker. Cult of Chucky should have taken notes. I think this is how you write... A compelling story, like in a mental hospital. Right. And the story's very good. The characters are very good. It's not just revolving around your final girl, but all of the characters matter and they're very hashed out. And it's a mix of new characters and recurring characters. And right. They do it awesome. You get that bond of Kristen Parker and Nancy that to me is just very organic and, and I really enjoy that aspect of it. Heather Langenkamp returns again as Nancy and it feels extremely natural that she's working in psychology and specializing in sleeping disorders and dream sequences. And that she feels for these kids when yeah. no one else will, she's the even when one. their parents won't. Um, and you get a really fun Robert Englund in this movie. He's, now He's great in this. Oftentimes, Freddy is taking different forms in this movie, like when, like in the junkyard the scene or, and the skeleton at, yeah. at the end. But when you do see Englund, he's very good. He's, he's a good mixture of scary and funny. Yeah. You get a Which couple great Part one, one and two, he's scary. Then you go kind of parts four, five, six. He's a little too campy. This is the perfect blend of both. I think this is Robert Englund at his best. If you put into account, he actually wrote his own one-liners for this movie. Welcome to primetime, bitch. Classic. Classic line, man. I do think this is the best Freddy Krueger in the whole series. On top of an incredible Freddy, what makes this movie super impactful? In my personal opinion, you get the best characters out of all 51 films in this movie. You not only get a great final girl, I've always liked Patricia Arquette, I just think she's a great actress. I think she's really good in her debut here. But you get some of the surrounding characters that are just very hashed out and very easy to root for, like Kincaid. Kincaid's awesome, man. Joey, Taryn, uh, Will, Philip. Like, they're all good. Even Dr. Neil has that character arc in order to find Freddy's remains. Max, played by Lawrence Fishburne, credited as Larry Fishburne yep. in this movie. Larry. But, man, I, all the characters in this movie are just super believable, and it's just a really good, compelling story. You have a really dark backstory with Amanda Kruger. It feels like a pretty good inclusion in this and, film. And it's more of like a side story. Like, it's not the whole plot, which yeah. is what I like about it. This movie was super influential in pop culture. It sparked a bunch of comics, video games, a lot of merchandise. Toys, yeah. Trudy. I think it's because you saw Freddy for the first time with his one-liners being funny. He became part of pop culture. He yeah. definitely did. Look, man, I look back on this movie, I think a lot of people would be... I don't want to say upset, but upset that this didn't crack our top 10. And oh, then that's yeah. not to say we don't like it. This yeah. Obviously, ranking all 51 films is incredibly difficult. But we yeah. really, really enjoy this movie and have a lot of respect for it. Kill scenes in this movie are awesome. I love 
Phillips death. Oh man, that's Sleepwalker. Good. Really good effects. It is with the with, uh, with basically it's, the, t- it's the tendons. It's hard to watch. Yeah, the tendons coming out of his. I wrist. always like find myself like looking away, and I don't and I don't look away from movies yeah. ever. That's a scene where too, it, I'm, it's hard for me to watch because when you're watching it, you can kind of feel what he's going through. Right. This movie did well for director Chuck Russell. He directed The Blob one year later, which was a moderately successful horror movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he directed The Mask in 1994 with Jim Carrey. Childhood classic of ours. Great movie. One of my favorite Jim Carrey's. So it did well for Chuck Russell. He's you know he's obviously not as active anymore, but it really helped his career take off a bit as well. This movie, the first concept for this movie was actually supposed to be that of Wes Craven's new nightmare. Right. I'm glad they didn't go to that concept that early. Yeah, I agree. That seems uh, premature. That seems like something that you do after you spit out a shit movie like uh, Freddy's Dead. Right, exactly. Wes Craven's A New Nightmare probably came at the perfect time. It did. Moving on right. to number 11, we have the original Child's Play. Man, it was hard to put this out of the top 10 because I I love this movie. I mean, I absolutely adore this movie. It's probably top five for me most frequently seen. I've, right. I've probably seen this movie upwards of 30 times. I mean, honestly. It's uh, so funny now when we started like ranking these movies and we had to watch uh, 51 to 41, how hard it is to watch some of those movies. I, I found myself watching Child's Play twice in the past week. Yeah. Like, like, like now it's really easy and it's fun. I wouldn't hesitate to call this movie a masterpiece just because of the animatronics that were so well done in 1988 on not much of a budget. I know we're not talking shoestring budget. But still, not a big budget. And like the animatronics that they pulled off, the practical effects. For 32 years ago. It's 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 remarkable, this mm-hmm. movie. A, a really cute kid in Alex Vincent playing Such a- a cutie, Amy man. Barkley. He is in the cute kid Hall of Fame of uh, yeah, man. cinema. For sure. Uh, you get Catherine Hicks as Karen Barkley. Very good in this movie. A very good single mother who just wants to yeah. provide for her kids. So you feel for her. Yeah, she's widowed. This movie is super it's super suspenseful compared to the next installment, Child's Play 2, whereas Child's Play 2 is, is a lot faster. It just starts with Chucky right. killing right away. This movie's suspenseful, but it really works, man. Like you don't hear Dorif just like Curse, you don't hear Dorif until halfway into the movie. And it's that epic scene where Karen finds the batteries and she realizes that, hey, Andy wasn't lying and that this dot is actually alive. And, you know, you get the great line where she first, where Chucky first speaks to Karen. You stupid bitch. You filthy slut. You filthy slut, yeah. Like, right then in that, like, right then in there, you know what you're getting with Chucky. Yeah. If those are his first lines. Deli- like, so vulgar. Delivered perfectly by Brad Dorf. Oh, man. It's so funny. Like, I, I like, know that those are bad words. Yeah. And you shouldn't say those kids. <laughs> but holy shit, that was funny. And I love the opening scene with, like, that urban setting on full display on the, mm-hmm. on the, on the streets of chicago i know i mentioned this in a prior podcast but i love the urban setting because it's different, different. compared to all the other slasher mm-hmm. franchises and we're talking about that's kind of where like a single mother would yeah. live who's struggling it's... you know like they they would live in an apartment complex right. in the city one of my favorite scenes is uh when chucky tells andy to skip school and he yeah. takes a train to the slums of chicago yeah that do- that's that's a scary scene for a kid to have to go yeah. into the slums because it because someone's telling him to because the kid's putting trust in someone that obviously doesn't give that doesn't care about him, and you know what makes that really scary too is that that's before you hear Brad Dorf speak, right? So only only Andy is hearing him, right? Which even which makes it even scarier. And yeah, that's when they kill Eddie Caputo. Yeah, great scene. There's another great scene where Mike Norris, the cop, first realizes that Chucky is real. It's when he's driving, mm-hmm. and Chucky starts putting the knife through the right. through the uh, the driver's side seat. 
almost right through his crotch. Yeah, yeah, and and Mike Great Norris scene. flips the car. Really, really good scene there too. The uh, storyline with uh, Mike Norris and Chucky's really cool too. How yeah. they both like uh, connect because Mike Norris is actually the one that killed Charles Lee Ray. Um, there's still a level of campiness in this movie too. Like on the elevator when the old lady sees Chucky sitting there and she goes, "Ugly da." And the elevator starts going up, and you just hear Brad Dorf go, "Fuck you!" <laughs> like the king, like, they're still. I know this is the this is the first installment in the franchise, but they're still self aware. They still know that they're dealing with a killer doll, a killer doll here, and they have fun with it. And a really fun fact here: Steven Spielberg recommended director Tom Holland. No, not Spider Man. Okay, not the director in this movie's name is Tom Holland, and Spielberg actually recommended him. Oh wow, he uh, did a great job because. This is a um, suspenseful movie, and yeah. it's a murder mystery movie, especially for the first hour. If you watch this movie and you've never seen any of the trailers, you may think it could, uh, it could be Andy. Yeah. And the whole like uh, opening scene was just like a ploy to make it seem like that it, it's a killer doll. I want to give you a quick couple questions and, and answer me with your with your gut response, okay? Right. Karen Barkley, Catherine Hicks, or Aubrey Plaza? Catherine Hicks. Mike Norris, Chris Sarandon, or Brian Tyree Henry? I gotta go with my boy Brian Tyree Henry. Dude, we agree, and I have my reasons. Yeah. So Catherine Hicks at the end of this movie, she's actually super badass. Where she's shooting Chucky, and she actually shoots him in the head. Mm-hmm. Like you don't really see Aubrey, Aubrey Plaza do anything that cool. She, I know yeah. she comes to the aid of Andy, but nothing is. She's not that. But fit. she's but she's the one that's like getting rescued at the end yeah. when she's hanging from right. the forklift. And Brian Tyree Henry's his relationship with Karen and Andy in that movie, and like like we said prior, his relationship with his mom. Yeah, I just think he's a better character than Chris mm-hmm. Sarandon's uh, Mike Norris. Agreed. And it's nothing against Aubrey Plaza and Chris Sarandon. Not at all. So if you guys are listening, we're sorry. We didn't mean to offend you because I because we know that um, Aubrey Plaza is a big fan of our podcast. Yeah. She's a subscriber, I believe. She is, and you should subscribe too. So that's it, man. That is our 20 through 11. Let's count it back down real quick. At number 20, we had Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. At 19, we had Wes Craven's A New Nightmare. At 18, we had Halloween from 2018, the direct sequel to the original 1978. At 17, we had the original Friday the 13th. At 16, we had Friday the 13th, Part 2. At 15, we had the Texas Chainsaw 2003 remake. At 14, we had Curse of Chucky. At 13, we had Halloween 4, The Return of Michael Myers. At 12, we had A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. And at 11, we had the original Child's Play. We are very much deep into some really, really, really damn good movies. And it's going to get even better in two weeks, man, when we do our top. 10 slasher movies. Come back for the top 10. We have one more episode. Until then, guys, take care.